All right, guys. Well, uh, welcome back to the PCHG EMS podcast. We're going to be going over ECMO today and eCPR. We have our assistant medical director, Dr. Bertrand, here with us, and we're just going to be going over some um, some ECMO stuff. So, can y'all tell us somewhat about your backgrounds in ECMO and how you got into it and what your interest in it? Right. So, um, my, like they said, my name is Andres Leal. I'm a cardiac surgeon currently at Fort Worth and in, in the Baylor system. Um, I trained cardiac surgery and then I did an extra year working at the University Medical Center in Dallas with, with Baylor. That's where I met Mario. And unfortunately, that was the time of the pandemic, you know. So um, I've always had an interest in mechanical support and enjoy working with the sick or the sick patients. And um, it was a uh, it was a very good learning experience. Um, as a, I think as a medical community we all learn about ECMO and it, it kind of slingshot the ECMO technology and what we can do quite a bit, I believe. Um, so once I finished uh, that training, um, I moved to Fort Worth and uh, been helping ramp up the ECMO program at Baylor All Saints. We started the ECPR program as well as our LVAT program and continue to work together with, it's a, it's a neat, neat community of physicians, because we work, it doesn't matter what hospital they work in, it's, a, it's very collegial. When it comes to ECMO, everybody just wants to have good outcomes and help as many people as possible. So that's a, one of the things I really enjoy about it. Yeah, so uh, my name is Mario Padilla. I'm a nurse practitioner at Baylor Downtown Dallas, and I've been doing ECMO for since 2010. So really since we started our ECMO program at uh, FUMSI. I've always, I uh, started as a nurse, and I've always been in cardiac surgery, actually since going on 20 years now. You can probably do the math from there, but yeah, going on 20 years. And I've done a little bit of, you know, ER and cath lab, so I've had some exposure, everything that's kind of come together with ECMO. Uh, so we've developed our program, you know, we're a, a, a gold center, platinum center, uh, was our last uh, redesignation certificate we got awarded by ELSO, which is the organization for, that oversees ECMO programs or any center that is recognized by uh, for their ECMO outcomes goes through ELSO. And um, I slowly worked my way up, you know, done uh, into primary roles uh, as an ECMO specialist, into uh, doing transports. We did, we were doing the first uh, transports for uh, patients uh, that we were putting on ECMO out in other facilities. And I would go out and be uh, as when Dr. Leal came on, I was, you know, you ready to go? We're going we're gonna to get rolling. Literally walk into any facility, not know who is who, and, and could walk anybody, anyone through on how to put somebody on ECMO. But there's putting them on ECMO, and then there's managing, which is two totally different things. So we would put them on, and then we'd bring them back to Baylor. Sure. Uh, so here, um, last, uh, it's been a solid year since we've actually uh, uh, officially um, identified or we officially have uh, ECMO dedicated uh, ICU that's strictly ECMO patients only. And along with uh, uh, our chief and medical director, I help manage all the patients. And so I uh, help partake in identifying evaluation to initiation to removing a patient from ECMO and even seeing the patient on an outpatient follow-up too as well so that they don't just fall okay. through the through the cracks. Yeah. And um, I, 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 completely agree with, I'll just echo what Dr. Uh, Leal said, I think uh, anything that's going to help improve outcomes, I'm all for. So yeah, uh, uh, call for help, I think we're going to help out, you know, we'll find one way to help out each other uh, right. or another for better outcomes. Great, great. Well, like Jeff said, we don't have a whole lot of experience with ECMO, but Best EMS and coupled with our agencies like Park County, we are all about improving outcomes and being aggressive. If that aggressivity has improved outcomes, and we're seeing that eCPR does looks like it will have those outcomes. And so <clears throat> we know, coupled with the basics of resuscitation, which is um, compressions and fibrillation, the only things that have been shown to increase your survivability in cardiac arrest are those two things. And so for us, this is kind of a mindset change because there's nothing in the hospital that 
our MICE units cannot do in the field with regards to resuscitating the patient. So our protocols call for them to stay in the field and resuscitate as long as it takes to either reach that point of getting Ross back or reaching that point of calling it as termination. So moving into ECMO field, it's a big change for us because now we're telling our crews, once you get things identified and you have your high-performance CPR going and it's a patient that meets our inclusion criteria, then we need to get that patient you know, in the back of the unit and get going to the closest ECMO center. Um, so <clears throat> our inclusion criteria call for a witness cardiac arrest, um, the initial rhythm being VT or VF, and I've had some questions from medics about, well, what, you know, what if the initial rhythm was VT or VF, um, or we get there and they got defibrillated by an AED, but now they're in asystole, well, we still transport those patients, right? Because the initial rhythm was VT yeah. or VF. So we still want those. Our age range is 18 to 65. It seems like um, there's so many agencies that have different age ranges. Some of them go up to 75. Some of them stop at age 50. So it looks like once you get above 75 or so, then it, the results are less promising. Um, and then we want to be within 45 minutes from the arrest to the facility, right? Because it seems like that 60 minute mark of getting somebody on the ECMO device is crucial. And we want them to have had bystander CPR, so less than five minutes of no flow. So if we have somebody who's been down for longer than that with no CPR, then they're excluded. And then our other <coughs> exclusion criteria are traumatic arrest, dialysis patients, anyone with a terminal illness or a DNR. So I would start for the people that don't know much about ECMO. I'll explain what ECMO is. Sure. And then as we progress, we'll go into the details and how much EMS can help us. Because honestly, I think the biggest part of the entire eCPR is the EMS system. Okay? Our job is made a lot easier by you guys' help, to be honest. So I'll start with ECMO. And ECMO just it, it means uh, it's an abbreviation for extracorporeal member oxygenation. And it's derived from the cardiopulmonary bypass that we normally use for heart-lung machine for, for cardiac surgery. Uh, it's been used since the 1970s. And what it is is that it, it pretty much is a oxygenating membrane, which I think about is anybody that's seen a fish tank, the machine that makes the bubbles, just circulates the, the water or the blood, gets rid of the, the carbon dioxide, and in, inserts oxygen so that the blood gets oxygenated again. Um, so that's what pretty much ECMO is. And there's two forms of it. Um, when you hear about it is venous venous and venous arterial. And what it means is venous venous you think about is just bypassing the lungs. So it was very common to use VV in, in, in short term is for um, COVID patients or patients that have ARDS or aspiration pneumonias. So that's, that's what we use. It just bypasses the lungs. So you assume the heart function is normal. Now VA is completely different in that it bypasses the lungs and the heart. So that's where you put in your drainage in the venous system and it oxygenates, gets rid of the CO2 and returns it into the arterial system. So that's, that's, that's sort of the two things that we're talking about. And like I said, uh, as a surgeon uh, at the beginning, I was just like, well, the, the, I always hear about this history and all that stuff and we, we probably don't need it. And then once you start doing it, you realize how complex it was. So you want to pay some homage to the, the people yeah. that came before yes. you, you know. But um, it, so the heart-lung machine was started in 1954 by a guy named, it was Dr. John Gibbon. And then ECMO, the father of ECMO is uh, Dr. Barlett. And uh, that started about neonatal, neonatal ECMO started by 1972. Um, so those, though, those were really pioneers. The first successful ECMO use in an adult patient was in 1972, and then in 1975, they used it on a uh, neonate with a meconium aspiration. So, and since then, we've made such a big advance into, in, in the ECMO technology that they are, there's no absolute guidelines of when you use ECMO. There's this society called ELSO that was created in 1989 that helped us. It means Extracorporeal Life Support Organization that was found, founded in 1989. And it gives a 
kind of overall some guidance on what to do and when to do it. Um, and like we saw in COVID, the other big push that we have for ECMO happened in 2009 with the flu pandemic and, and 1H1N. Um, so that's where the WHO kind of realized that this is a technology that we can use and have some good outcomes. So since that, since that pandemic, the H1N1, there's been a lot of increase and push into researching more about what can we do, how can we do it, how can we be more efficient, how can we have better outcomes. Um, so there's a big trial that happened in 2009, it's called the CESAR trial, um, that it, it showed that um, increased survival on patients that had ECMO and, and, and uh, the flu. So that kind of like slingshot everything again, you know, we have those technologies that started in the 70s and then it kind of was dormant. Some people were doing it, not very much. H1N1 happened and we realized that we have this technology store and not being overutilized and we saw the good outcomes. So since then it's been pushed and I think after COVID it just exponentially increased the use of it. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. So in someone with influenza or any other viral pneumonia, COVID, whatever it be, and they have respiratory failure, they'll end up in later. Are all of those people candidates for ECMO or do they, do you have certain criteria that they're maxed out on? Yeah, so whenever there's a criteria, unfortunately in, in those scenarios with the pandemics, that a pandemic is a completely different scenario than before because we have limited resources, right? So. Criteria happens and we become more strict as the need increases because we have to make sure that we cater to the people that are going to have the best outcome and survive, right? And it's, it's one of the toughest decisions you have to do as a medical professional. But, um, yeah, we try to pick people that are um, for flu that are on, like, you know, less than 65, less than 70, uh, single organ um, uh, damage, you know. Okay. We want to make sure that they're... Um, they're pretty healthy otherwise, because okay. it, it's a lot easier to deal with the lungs failing, one thing failing, versus when you have your kidneys failing, your liver failing, your blood levels. Le so so there's certain criterias, and every institution has different, different criterias, uh, and it's just based on, one, I think, is the amount of resources they have, and number two is um, the comfort level from the ICU team and the the yeah. medical professionals taking care of them. And so when you go to select those <coughs> patients, not to be confused with, oh, well, you're cherry picking. Yeah. You know, you're right. putting patients on that are going to come off who never needed ECMO. But if you look at the criteria, you look at their x-rays, you look at their CT scans, their lungs are damaged. Yeah. I mean, beyond recognition in some of the patients. Mm -hmm. Their PF ratios, you know, if you understand, I mean, their PF ratios are less than 100. Mm -hmm. Prone, you know, just severe yeah. ARDS. And a single organ failure, especially when you had the number of patients that went through and COVID had, it, it, I felt like it came in spurts where it was like lung, it was affecting lungs and it's affecting the kidneys and it's affecting the lungs, heart and kidneys. So you get into organ failure. So you go to put these patients on, you know, the, or the centers are like, okay, this center's doing it, I want to do it. Well, you go to put these patients on, then you're finding, now you find yourself in a, in a hole with a patient with multi-organ. So uh, is identifying those patients appropriately and, uh, and of course utilizing your resources appropriately because then before you know it, your institution's out of beds mm -hmm. and not just for the flu or H1N1 patient, but your everyday ER patient that's going to come through is now your ERs, you yeah. know, being a bottleneck and backed up. Right. Uh, but I think that's where the criteria comes into play. You know, you kind of have to treat rapid triage like you would in the field yeah. in a mass casualty scenario. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming when you put somebody on ECMO, it's not a quick process to put them on and then take them back off. No, a, and, like and a, that a was something that, that was different that we saw influenza versus COVID, you yeah. know? The influenza patient or the ARDS for aspiration, those are what we call short runs. So they usually get better within 10 days, okay? COVID, it was, there were very long treatments that the way that the virus affected the lung tissue was completely different than something that we had seen before. So the ECMO runs, it was not unusual to be two, three months. So thinking about, the, that's why we had the criteria because we only, even the big institutions, we have 
six, eight, ten machines, right. you know? And knowing that if you put somebody on it, it's going to stay on for about three months. So for three months, that machine yeah. is completely out of, like, you can't put anybody else. So um, that's one of the challenges. So normally we say if it's a VA ECMO, it usually runs less than 10 days. After 10 days, okay. the survival kind of decreases and it kind of is like it's self-determined. But um, the VV, you can keep it for a long time. The longest we had were, it was close to six months. Yeah, 107 um, days, I think. Was All out. So that was Survivor? No. Well, didn't discharge from the hospital, but yes. Okay. Survive the ECMO. Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, I mean, obviously, the shorter the run, the, yeah. the easier the body recovers. But um, So those are some of the things that we had to deal with. Um, so we learned a lot about ECMO during those times because we were going over the, t the limit of the, the, the time that previously patients had gone, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, it's all in charter territory. Yeah, I haven't seen that many patients being kept for three months, yeah. four months. And that was pretty much the usual amount. Yeah. So the components of the ECMO machine are, there's the membrane oxygenator, there's a centrifugal pump that has to pump the blood, and drain the blood and pump it, and then you have cannulas. You also, you know, those patients, um, you sometimes you need to cool them, you need to warm them so it has a heater, and one of the advantages is that in the case that the kidneys are failing or they are fluid overloaded, you have specific connections that you have to, that you can put them on and you can do dialysis through the ECMO circuit. So, and um, so those are the, the pretty much the components of the, uh, the ECMO circuit. It, it's, a, it's a very portal machine. It, it has decreased in size. If you see the pictures from like 1970, they were the size of the actual heart-lung machine they use in cardiac surgery. And now they're transportable. They're about the size of a, uh, I don't know, a big box. Carry-on suitcase. Yeah. Carry on, yeah. yeah. And are, when you're cannulating these vessels, are you using ultrasound or anything for confirmation, or you're just going? So, so whenever, so we have a system, and it was uh, the way that I learned is the way, the way that Mario and uh, the the guys at Bumpsy mm -hmm. uh, have been doing it, and we try to use ultrasound. As uh -huh. much as possible, because it has decreased the, the risk of complication injury yeah. and direct injury to the vessels. So we use ultrasound and cannulate by putting a wire, kind of the same procedure that you would do right. a central a central mm -hmm. line, Seldinger technique, needle wire, yeah. and then dilating, Dilated. and then you put the cannulas in. Now, big other centers, I know, um, they like to have echocardiogram available, and they have to get like a. I image by fluoroscopy, yeah. um, but we've done <coughs> hundreds of patients now, and um, we feel very comfortable doing it uh, in, um, blindly yeah. with with the cannulas. But the biggest complication is growing complications, and uh, they they're greatly avoided by using ultrasound. Yeah, and if you have a patient if from EMS coming to the emergency department, how long does it the procedure take from the time that you walk in there to getting them on the pump and feeling like okay we're on so i mean uh, if if how it works here and and i live in in parker county so i'm very interested for you guys to be good at it because <laughs> I, I live here <laughs> yes <laughs> but um so we get the, you guys notify us so when you guys identify and this is why it's so important for ems to be our partners is that you guys identify Say I might have a guy that will benefit, or a girl that might benefit from, from, from uh, eCPR. So the alert goes to all the team members, uh, or ECMO specialists are in house. Um, the surgeons live about 10, 15 minutes away, so we start heading over. By the time that we get there, the patient is quickly assessed by the EMS. I mean the emergency uh, room doctor. Um, confirms that it will be a good, good candidate for ECMO based on the criteria that we'll mention here in a second. And, um, and it, the, the, the process is fairly quick. I would say once the patient is in the trauma bay to the we're on pump is usually about 15 minutes. Okay. Okay. 
interesting. So that's where the that's where our forty five minutes comes from is because we're trying to keep it beneath an hour. Yeah. For us. yeah. I would say I, I would say even as as you work on it and develop it and, and really improve tightening up your times, the process you can even shave off you know minutes. Somebody doesn't think one or two three minutes yeah. count, but they do when you're on the clock. So I would even push back you know the notification time to dispatch. You know, right. if dispatch, uh, when, when you communicate uh, with dispatch, a uh, cardiac witness arrest, at that point, yeah. dispatch can already contact, okay, well, this is going to be your ECPR center. You know, similar to a, you know, of course, uh, practice dictates that you would go to your nearest center. I think in this case, with ECMO and ECPR being available, mm -hmm. similar to a stroke, you have a patient who has a stroke, well, you need to go to a stroke center. You have a patient who has a uh, cardiac arrest, uh, viable candidate for ECPR, then uh, you know at that point you would redirect to your closest ECPR center and then that's gonna alert the team mm -hmm. whether you know we're good to go and you guys confirm then the team is gonna meet you in the ER. And even some of the patients where uh, I know where we've gotten really, really good, we're you know, door to ECMO to cath lab in some instances in less than 15 minutes. Oh, and wow. it's, and I mean the outcome is, you know, drastically, like it's it's notable. You know, it's yeah. and it's a, a a win for everybody, but a big win for the patient. Yeah. So for sure. So and that's one of the areas that is an area of improvement for us because of just coming into this, we have been relying on our responding medics to make the determination if the patient mm -hmm. meets criteria. One of the things in reading more about this is that it really needs to start with dispatch, yeah. um, and especially here in a place that's such a vast county. Because it can be dispatch, you know, on the phone with the bystander, coaching them through CPR for seven, eight, nine minutes um, before, you know, medics arrive. And so I think we'll have to roll that back to we need dispatch to start trying to assess if the patient meets criteria while they're talking to the bystanders doing CPR. Absolutely. We can definitely shave some minutes off of that. Absolutely. Once the medics arrive, they can immediately know it's a candidate. Put a, put a blurb in the notes for us as we're responding. Hey, yeah. possible possible ECPR candidate. Yeah, um, I'm going to show my ignorance real quick. Um, so, what if I'm transporting to an ECMO center, and I've already made the alert, and then I get ROSC? Does that affect keep, anything? Keep coming. So, so, go ahead. Yeah, I would say I would say just just if you already made the call, you've already alerted the team, you got ROSC. Great, great for the patient. What are the chances if uh, in some of the literature where you look up to uh, these patients that have VTAC, VFib, initial rhythm, there's a, the culprit tends to be some sort of a coronary uh, lesion. Uh, yeah, you got ROS, but also the chance of refractory VTVF are also probably just as high, maybe over 50%. And that happens. It happens. You show up, oh, we got ROS, great. You know, I'm like, hey, good job, excellent CPR, you guys did great. And you guys turn around and leave, and guess what? They go right back into VTVF. Not uncommon for that to happen, you know, back and forth. And we figured out, well, we're no longer going to scratch our heads about it. Let's just put yeah. them on ECMO and go ahead and, you know, go after, you know, activate the, at that point, you know, whether it's a non-STEMI or STEMI, you know, activate yeah. the uh, cath lab too as well. And that's some of the things that we have talked about before. Um, our, our preference is for you to get ROSC, okay? Continue doing the good compressions, the same ACLS that you have to do. Um, and, and if you get them and we come in, and the entire team is always happy to be there, you know? Your success is our success, so it doesn't matter if you get Ross. Just continue doing during transport the same things that you've done for a long time, you know? The good compressions, the medications. And then once we get them, we can evaluate and see well, maybe we'll stop the epi at this point, you know, if we're gonna go on ECMO or, but that's, um, I mean, uh, the compressions and stuff with yeah. the Lucas. But for you guys doing transport, keep doing what you've been doing a great job at with the good compressions, the medications. And if you get Ross, that's a success. Um, but we'll be on board and following because of those refractory patients. Okay. And uh, some centers, once you get the patient on ECMO and before going to the cath lab, RCU. Um, some centers are passing the patient through CT. What is y'all's practice? So we we would like to go through the CT scan, yeah. and there's a couple of things that we looked at. Number one, one of the biggest things that can happen, and 
is that they might have either a brain bleed or a big stroke. Okay, so we want to know right up front if something devastating happened because you can get cardiac function, but if you, the inside of an event was a huge stroke, then you want to know that. You want to know that your cannulas are in a good position. You want to make sure there's no retroperitoneal hematoma. There's no other things that you have you might miss as well. Um, now CT scans in the ER in particular are so streamlined that it probably adds maybe another, honestly, another five, seven minutes yeah. before the patient goes to the to the ICU or the cath lab, and it gives a broad, I mean, it's, it gives us a lot of information that yeah. might be useful in the long term. And yeah. then just to add on to that, another big, uh, uh, you know, that's come out from having the CT scans done is there is the CTA. Yeah. So a pulmonary embolism, a massive pulmonary embolism, a saddle embolism, that's something that is, uh, we've been able to identify, you know, you think you know, you see elevated troponin, BMP, yeah. maybe you see some elevated, some ST, EKG changes, so you automatically go to STEMI. Well, yeah, you know, there's uh, either, it's hypoxia, lack of oxygen driven, so the tissue's yeah. taking some damage. And when you go to do the CT scan, yeah. you see the massive saddle pulmonary embolism. Mm -hmm. So at that point, even more, just to add on to the streamline, cath lab's already activated, but yeah. now they're setting up for a mechanical thrombectomy. Yeah as opposed to a PCI, you know, because now the tools vary by little, but when they already know, okay, this yeah. is, this is, this is the culprit, this is the, yeah. this is the issue, then it just streamlines their care to, uh, so it helps, a, it helps a lot. Yeah. I okay. guess it helps a lot. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And in, in these Good. situations that we're talking about, just so I'm on the same page, it's always going to be VA ECMO when we're becoming, and AC, ECPR, ECPR yes, is always yeah. going to be VA. Okay. Yes, correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then, I've had some people ask me, what is the difference between ECMO and if my grandfather goes in for a bypass operation? Is, how similar is that? So ECMO is designed, if you want to go into the nitty gritty of it, ECMO came from the bypass machine, mm -hmm. okay? And when you're doing heart surgery, you're using 35, 40,000 units of heparin, okay? Because you want the blood as thin as, thin as possible because you have a reservoir. So you drain the patient's blood into a reservoir so you don't want that to be, to be coagulated. You know, on the ECMO, it's a closed circuit. Okay. So you're able to have a much lower dose of heparin because you don't have a reservoir. You don't have stagnant blood. It okay. continues. So by having it that way, ECMO is able to be run much longer and safer than a cardiopulmonary bypass. So it comes, the technology first was a cardiopulmonary bypass machine, and then it, it's pretty much, you took all the unnecessary parts that you're not gonna use for doing open heart surgery, and it's a continuous loop. Okay. It's a closed circuit. Okay. And then you mentioned earlier, you're, once you have patient in the ER, determining your criteria, is that different from EMS's criteria or not? So as, as far as, the, our, our criteria is gonna line up because we're gonna be okay. on the same page. When we're working together, yes. first of all, we're gonna, okay. we're gonna be, uh, we're gonna make sure that we're reading from the same book, nobody's getting their um, uh, checklist crossed. But I think one of the big things when you do show up and we have this patient in cardiac arrest, as you mentioned and emphasized, is the high quality CPR. Um, I think one of the things that's really come about that's helping out is the automated chest compression devices mm -hmm. or Lucas, not to be promoting one or another, but I think everybody, a lot of folks are familiar with uh, Lucas that, you know, automated it. Frees up some ear man to, you know, reorient and place another line if they have to, be able to give drugs or record or whatever else they have to do. Uh, the other big key factor is gonna be that we are very uh, strict about is witnessed and meaning that you r uh, arrived on scene talking to the patient and the patient just went, you know, uh, syncopal event, you know, they, they went into arrest right in front of you. So it um, needs to be a provider witness. I, I, I would, I would, uh, I would say it's, that's, it's that's preferred. preferred. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, depends on, we try to be as accommodating and, and, and help as many people as we can. But as you know, when somebody, somebody, especially somebody that's near to you passes out and has a cardiac arrest, time goes by a lot faster than you realize. 
you know? He's like, hey, I was just talking to them and it's been only like two minutes. When, when you analyze everything with the stress and everything, it's probably about seven, eight, 10 minutes. And who knows if you were, where you were at and how prepared that patient is, or the, the, the family member or the witness is to do good, good compressions, to call 911. So then you start adding a lot of unknown factors that, that bind into that time. And, and that's, that's what we can, we can get cardiac arrest, but we don't know about what the mental status is gonna be, the, the hypoxic yeah. issue that's gonna be. So that's why we have that criteria. I mean, we try to be as accommodating as, as, as we can, especially with young patients. You know? Yeah, I was going to say, I would imagine age plays a big factor in that. It, it does. I mean, I think, uh, you know, you hate to hear, uh, you know, somebody in their teens or their 20s, you know, young, family. Um, I think if anything else, for um, as much as we have available and for what we do for our community, you know, those patients really deserve a chance. And it could be one of those things where, you know, again, going back where you're going upstream to dispatch. And dispatch could have been on the phone with a patient calling in, shortness of, you know, my chest hurts, I'm having difficulty breathing. Then they all of a sudden stop speaking, but somebody's there to pick up the phone or just start CPR. I mean, that, you know, that could be documented time, too, as well, that we would take into account. We know exactly. Um, we know exactly when they lost right, consciousness, right. yeah. Mm -hmm. we've, had, we've had a few of those fairly recently, actually. Yeah. yeah, and so that I think that as long as we're all on the same page and we see eye to eye, then uh, you know better outcomes are going to be. Uh, hopefully, you know one can't predict it. If one could, we could, but it's yeah. going to be in our favor for a, a better outcome for everybody. And that could be something that we work with our dispatchers and uh, you know to get like an actual timestamp uh, yeah. in the notes of the call that we can pass on to you guys. Hey, at this time. They were talking and they stopped talking. So you guys right. have an exact like if you're considering ECMO, right? We know yeah. this is when the cardiac arrest probably started. Yeah, and and, and the guidelines are, are there for a reason, you know. But it's not like, oh, it, you get set 45 minutes and it's going to take 47 and we're not going to do it. Sure. Obviously, right. I mean, we try to we try to work together and we have the same the same goal as to to save many people as possible. So um, that's why overly. To communicate with you guys and you guys are the most informed partnership that we can have is good communication with you guys when when they give us report we like for the EMS crew to stay around um, once we go on ECMO or we decide not to go but then we debrief and how we can make things better for you guys and 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 then things that you could have done or you know we grow together as a system and, and right and as, a, as a group yeah you know? And I think something that from a paramedic's perspective, it can be frustrating for us. You know, we get there and we're like, oh, this might be a, this might be an ECMO candidate. This might be an eCPR. Like, we're going to save this person. And then for whatever reason, uh, one of those contraindications, it's like, hey, this one's not, a, not actually a good candidate for ECMO. We're not going to do it. It could be frustrating for us. But from y'all's perspective and from what you guys are doing, you're protecting a really important resource that actually is absolutely necessary to be available to somebody who's truly like could, could benefit and survive. And, and so. And, and to that point, that's why I, I, I want the EMS crew to stay and participate in the debriefing. Cause man, I, I mean, I know you guys are so invested in trying to save that patient, but then when we see them and the lactic acid is like over 25 mm -hmm. and um, you know, the CO2 is high. So there's signs of hypoxic injury and mild perfusion. And, but it's a good thing we celebrate our successes together, you know? We're pretty good at um, trying to get back with the AMS and be like, hey, remember that guy you guys dropped and all that? He walked out of the hospital, right. you know? Because I want you guys to see that as well, not just, oh, they went on ECMO and I don't know what else happened, mm -hmm. you know? So, and then when we, when we, um, when the patient's not a candidate, we talked about why he's not a candidate. Right. It's not like we just say, oh no, he's not because it's not convenient or anything like that. No, we, yeah. we wanna make sure that we do everything we can and also keep you guys involved because there's so much effort from your standpoint, physically, emotionally, to get those yeah. patients through that I want you guys to be part of the team and feel very validated because we can't do anything that we do yeah. without you guys' help. So. Kind of highlight the four important factors uh, of all ECPR, ECMO, EMS, the two crews, everybody just coming in together. 
you know, imagine yourself having a checklist. Dispatch has, you know, with dispatch getting the call, they have their checklist of screening a patient for eCPR. Cardiac arrest automatically just get checklists out. It's, you know, they'll start going through. And so far, they're checking at the box. You arrive, check, check, check. And then once those four boxes are checked, you know, your ECMO center has already been put on alert. So high quality CPR, uh, early intervention, early arrival, um, and, and scooping and running for uh, lack of a better term, you know, not to say that we're just picking up a patient, but being able to get to that center within that time frame. I understand rural areas can, you know, be difficult. I know that. I grew up in a rural area. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, we're, you know, working to where our team is mobile through via uh, a helicopter rotary, and if it's something where we can load and go ourselves and meet you at a neutral area in you know 15 minutes and meet up, I mean that's something that you know is we're not we're not too far from that uh, future, and that's totally something that we could work together on and and capitalize on. What one of the things that you know I also emphasize is is again it, it's going to sound like a broken record, but is identification of your rhythms. Uh, EMS, I mean, you guys see, and I worked from the short stint in three years that I worked in the ER. I mean, I know you guys see strips after strips after strips after strips, really, really being comfortable with a uh, rhythm, cardiac rhythm identification, really knowing that. And it sounds silly, you know, but uh, it really can make a difference is, is identifying your strip. You know, BTVF been known to have the best survival outcome. Uh, if that's your initial rhythm, first initial documented rhythm, that's what it is. You shock them and they go into asystole. Your first initial documented rhythm is VTVF. Keep going, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, and as you go into PEA or asystole, you show up to those, those rhythms tend to carry lower mortalities. Not an absolute contraindication because it could be that young person that, you know, for some reason maybe has a history of cardiac disease and has an established physician. And sometimes they show up in our system, you know, they have, this is a patient who's been seen, well, you know, we know it's, we have an idea of what's going on. Let's continue to go forward. Uh, CPR, the time, you know, that again is gonna make the big difference. The longer the time goes, I mean, after about 20, 30 minutes, the, the curve, the falling off the cliff, for lack of a better term, is pretty steep, you know. Um, so we, you know, we like to say, you know, 60 minutes is kind of like the standard guideline for any reputable uh, eCPR center, mm -hmm. but that's total, time from right. you know the call of dispatch so when the patient collapsed to yeah. you know being able to get that patient on ECMO and sometimes there's overlap I, I, I'll be honest and I'll be wrong we're, you know we're, we're I would question myself well we just went too far you know the patient was down too long oh my gosh now you know now we're gonna have to go through the process of you know what's going on you know anoxic injury and devastating yeah. more devastating hope to the family for some reason, the patients are not. You know, there is outliers, uh, yeah. but we try to avoid that as much as possible. To, you know, we don't want to instill uh, false hope into anybody. But time is a big difference. Um, and as you can tell, I mean, uh, we spoke of a couple of centers: Albuquerque, New Mexico, University of Minnesota is another huge uh, eCPR center. And, and then again, they just go into the relationship of CPR and survival. And I keep harping on that because. That's, you know, that's what's gonna, your quality CPR, your early, just being on top of it and getting to the center is really gonna have the biggest uh, effect on the patient's outcome. Um, and as they get to that 20, 30 minute mark, the mortality uh, continues to increase from there. Um, these patients that go into VTVF, I think it's been shown that, you know, a good chunk of them, 70, 80 percent, tends to be uh, coronary, you know, ACS syndrome. Uh, so for those, uh, you know, as much as we like to say quick, easy fix, um, going to a good center, it, it seems like a quick, easy fix, right? Uh, historically, those, those patients that went into VTVF or had refractory, I mean, their mortality was really, really high, you know, way over um, 80%. And now we've been able to half that, uh, oh, wow. that, death, that death mortality percentage just with yeah. the use of CPR and the use of team collaboration with EMSs. Yes, yeah. and, and so, so the big team is the EMS, the heart surgeons, cardiologists, critical care, 
So that's why we partner up with a cardiologist. You have to make sure that they're all on board and excited about this as well. Yeah. Because um, we can put them on ECMO, but we need to reverse the underlying cause. Mm -hmm. And um, they're an invaluable um, team member as well. Yeah, certainly. Well, that's, that's one thing that I was uh, obviously, you know, leading up to this, I've tried to do a little bit of research and, like, educate myself on ECMO. And, one thing that was summarized pretty well is, you know, a Lucas device might achieve an ejection fraction of 35%, and ECMO, VA ECMO is 100%, right? I mean, like, mm -hmm. it's it's completely perfusing the patient. So yeah. any any problem that is related to the heart or lungs pretty much fixes it immediately. So uh, <coughs> ECMO can definitely, can definitely support. I mean, ECMO has its, you know, 20, catch 20, uh, 20 to it as well you know it's it's not designed um, for long term anybody anytime we have somebody on VA support uh, or we put them on we're already thinking in our heads when is what's, what's going to be our exit strategy yeah. and this is where it's great to have somebody like Dr. Leal and he get he can get very creative between all of us on how we're going to get this patient off ECMO uh, I, I mean I've had a patient that we've had on ECMO 24, 48 hours, and I'm like, all right, I know what we need to do. Let's get this patient off ECMO because you, the longer you leave them, I mean, you do prolong the patient to other conditions, sure, yeah. you know, such as hemolysis, you know, thrombocytopenia. You're chewing up the red blood cells. You're chewing up the platelet count. Yeah. You know, they're on anticoagulants, so the risk for uh, head bleed is there. Limb ischemia, gut ischemia, yeah. liver failure. Yeah. So we, that's what we're saying. Like if it's a VA, you kind of have 10 days. After 10 days, mm -hmm. you need to start coming up pretty okay. soon before something yeah. else happens. Um, and so I think the next step in DCPR is going to be kind of what you touched on. It's trying to bring it from the hospital to the field is where it's going to be needed. Because you mentioned you live here in Park County. You grew up in a rural area. I grew up in a rural area. Jeff lives in a rural area now, basically. And we want our survivability to be, I hate to use the word fair, because life's not fair, but fair for everyone, right? If I go into cardiac arrest right now, or at my house, or you in your yard, we want your chances of viability to be the same as if you would have had your cardiac arrest while you were in the parking lot at your hospital. Absolutely. And it's just, we're, I don't know if we'll ever get there, but that's our, that's what we strive for, right? Is that if I have a cardiac arrest in Weatherford versus Little Rock versus downtown Dallas, I want to have the chance, same chance of survival from that. And um, there are some centers that are bringing it out into the field. It's a huge challenge. Um, as we can imagine, but I think that's where we're going to have to be headed, um, at least for, you know, the vast majority of our country, which is rural. Right. And I think that's a big difference. I, I, I'm not an expert, obviously, but, you know, the big in the field um, ECMO centers and stuff have, has been mainly in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, Europe is, is much smaller than yeah. just Texas, you know what I mean? Right. So, in our population, there's there's a big distance. Yeah. Um, if you compare DFW, I think I think what I expect in the future is going to be the the hop and the wheel and the spokes mm -hmm. kind of model. So you have a hospital right across from this this building, right? It's it's small. It probably won't be able to take care of the ECMO, but maybe you have the option in the future once this becomes more mainstream mm -hmm. that you can take into that EMS. At the, to that ER, the patient gets cannulated, shipped immediately to a center that can yeah. identify the cost and manage it. Yeah. So I think I think the U.S. and, and we're moving into having a lot smaller hospitals versus the and then the transport into yeah. the big the, the big uh, centers. Mm -hmm. um, and as time goes by, and this becomes more mainstream, there's more more people that know about this and the skills for the people doing it are, are, are built, maybe that, that, that's, that's one of the solutions that we might have. Um, and that's where EMS and the transports, helicopter and all that stuff will come in. Yeah, because you know, being one of the few things in the last 60 years that has been shown to improve your survivability mm -hmm. from cardiac arrest, we really you know, need to try and get it out 
you know, to our patients because it's, it just, it, it's so crucial in the time frame to get them on. And you're, and you're seeing a, an increased um, interest in, in developing programs. Yeah. And that's another thing, it, it's kind of um, um, special, and that's what I like, is that I have friends in different hospital systems, and I know that I can pick up the phone and ask for help, and they'll come mm -hmm. in if we're full. Again, yeah. it's a community, especially, yeah. that we're trying to make sure that we can reach out as many patients as possible. Yeah. So that we can increase the uh, yeah. success. Um, so it, it goes beyond the hospital affiliation. It goes beyond everything. Oh, yeah. It's just we just want to make sure that we are working mm -hmm. together as as a community to help those people. Yeah. You know. Um, so if there are centers that well we're interested in opening this program, we're happy to go in. We're happy to go show them how we do it. You know. Right. Because um, that might be my dad, my mom that might need it, you know? Right. So I'm happy to yeah. share our knowledge and, and we're there to back them up as well. Yeah. If they say, well, we got this patient on ECMO, we need help getting them off. Yeah. And then that's when we come in and transfer them in as well. Yeah. So I think that's, that's what might happen in the future. Yeah, hopefully so. Hopefully is, so. Uh, is ECMO getting more affordable? I mean, I know you guys said it used to be these giant machines, but is it still getting more portable, or is it about as about as good as it gets? Well, you have to have it. I think it's pretty portable. You mm -hmm. know, if you think about it, is that those patients are pretty sick. The ECMO machine is probably one of the smallest things that you, it's heavy, but it's small um, that you're moving. But you're you're, you're transferring the patient. You're trying. They're on a ventilator. They're on the drips. <coughs> I think it's I'd rather process. transport the ECMO itself than all those pumps. Sure. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, um, those pumps are uh, are more cumbersome than oh, the ECMO itself. Yeah. My only experience really transporting ECMO, um, we it was a it was a fixed wing flight. The the ECMO team was on a on an airplane with the with the patient. They got out, got in our ambulance, and we plugged it into the ambulance. And for some reason, it wasn't charging. This was at a different service uh, many years ago, and our ambulance, I guess, couldn't put out enough power to power the ECMO mm -hmm. machine. And so I'm like, okay, I asked the perfusionist or whoever was writing, uh, how long does your battery last? And he's like, well, it lasts about 45 minutes. Cool, we're only 15 minutes away from the hospital. Five minutes later, the battery just died. The ECMO machine stopped. I don't know if it was VV or VA, but I know that he very quickly pulled out a hand pump and handed it to me right. and told me, keep it in the green. And I'm just <laughs> I'm like looking at it and I'm trying to crank it. I did a terrible job. I, I'm pretty sure I never got past orange or yellow or whatever it was. And he's like, He's like, no, you got to go faster. That thing was like really difficult it's, to pump. Yeah, it's heavy. Yeah. Finally, he snatched it from me and just did it himself and got it in the green the whole way. And I guess, I guess it did fine. But that was really my only experience transporting it. It terrified me because I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm, I have no idea how to operate this thing. Well, and it's interesting because the agencies that I'm looking to that are doing ECMO in the field, they're, they're it sounds like they're all using the hand pumps. The hand crank, yeah. Yeah, they're using the hand pumps. Um, but it was a Herculean effort. In the Netherlands, they have, I don't know if you looked at their service, but they have four helicopter teams, basically, and they trained, like, 52 physicians to be on the teams. But their goal is that everyone in the Netherlands will get ECMO if they meet criteria. There's no area yeah. that they won't. And, you're, and you're right on point. I mean, you have this happening over clear halfway across the world. Yeah. Infrastructure is going to be key. Yeah. And you got to have buy-in from, you know, I guess, when you, not just TMS, but even the city. You know, the city's, oh, city's, city's going to have to buy into this, yeah. too, as well. The money's got to come uh, from somewhere. It, it does, because you, yeah. you have to have, when you uh, want to come in and collaborate with the center for uh, EMS to provide eCPR patients, mm -hmm. I mean, it's like anything else. You, you're never, you, no one can predict when it's going to come, but when mm -hmm. it comes, you have to have a team dedicated and ready to go. I mean, and ready to go, and I mean, to the point to where we're, we would like to even have your team uh, sitting at our facility at one of our ambulance bays, mm -hmm. ready to go, with our team ready to go. I mean, you're not right. sitting there by yourselves just twiddling your thumbs, mm -hmm. although that may seem what you're doing, but until that call comes in, they, yeah. there is no delay on the team, whether it be by ground or by air. Yeah. And I think that's where the Netherlands is at right now. They, you know, they just definitely, they definitely got the step up on everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I'll share with you guys, since we're talking about ECMO and ECPR, 
just because uh, I'm sit on the our little planning committee. Mm-hmm. I say little planning committee, but our planning committee for uh, our facility, well, we're actually going to have a ECMO symposium. It's a system wide ECMO symposium that accounts for all Baylor's, and then mm-hmm. uh, we're also going to have some uh, keynote speakers from other facilities. Okay. In addition to uh, a <coughs> keynote speaker from uh, University of Minnesota, Dr. Yiannopoulos, oh, who oh, wow. is, yeah. you know, yeah. he'll be there. He's and then, the, he's the guy. Yeah, so yeah. he's going to come in. So, uh, what is this? Uh, June 1st and June 2nd. Of this year? Uh, okay. Of this year, yes, sir. Yeah. And I think okay. it'll be a good time. I mean, you'll be able to get, get it all in from beginning mm-hmm. to end to the quirks. You know, I, I call there's a section in there like the aftermath of ECMO. Okay. You know, because you have, you know, that's something that we're accounting for. We have this yeah. outpatient ECMO clinic. Dr. Leal has actually referred a couple of patients to us from Fort Worth. But, you know, what happens after, you know? Right. So, uh, I can't uh, imagine the recovery. Some, I, I think I had a patient say that their PCP dropped or fired them or dropped them because they were, just, they had too many, accumulated too many comorbidities during that yeah. hospital stay that they did not know how to manage them. Yeah, they were just uncomfortable. So, um, you know, we don't want them to fall off. You know, we want to be able to help see them through. And so the symposium is open to anyone or? It's, it's going to, we do have a registration site that's going to okay. be uh, open to its docs, EMS crews, students, nurses, APPs. One of our, he's actually, and he's speaking, and this may touch a lot of folks, or may may feel some folks sensitive. Is pregnancy and ECMO? It, it it happens. You know, you get the girl that you go and pick up who's having placenta previa, or yeah, or pulmonary uh, embolism from amniotic uh, fluid. You know, yeah. So at a Baylor Olson, there's uh, Andrews Women's Hospital. So no background. When my wife was pregnant, I was freaking out about everything. So I wanted to make sure that we had the eCPR going. Um, that everything was set up, and um, and we've actually had, unfortunately, some ladies that had a amniotic fluid embolism, oh, you know, wow. when they were doing a C-section or delivery, and yeah. you know, we've saved them. Oh, wow. um, and we have a survival reunion once a mm-hmm. year, and they all come, and um, oh, wow. I didn't want to put those pictures for HIPAA things, but yeah. they all come in, they're there, and we have great success, and yeah. I think... Initially, the OBGYNs were kind of hesitant, and now they're they're one of the like biggest oh, advocates really? we have. Well, I think we well, touched on about everything. Thank you guys yeah. very much. Thank for you for having us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Really appreciate it. This has been an episode of the PCHD EMS podcast. Thank you for joining us.